Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's life, trials, troubles, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs as it comes along. Today, once again, I have a TikTok star. I'm going to call you a TikTok star, whether you are or not. I, I don't recall how many followers you have, uh, but a guy I met on TikTok named Sebastian Scales. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, scales like a fish. All right. So uh, Sebastian has has quite an interesting story uh, to tell, and uh, I, I'm going to guess that as a coping mechanism, you've turned it into comedy and in a comedic routine as you know, it's one of those things where you might as well laugh as to cry about it. Uh, so uh, we're we're looking definitely, at, man. Yeah. So where where are you at? Where are you located? Uh, I live in LA, but I'm actually just back home in my parents' uh, backyard at the moment. I got so, you. So, yeah. Uh, it yeah, looks in, like in you're north, uh, northwest. Yeah, it looks like you're in the middle of the uh, forest there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, just outside of Seattle, so uh, deep in the woods. Gotcha. So there's much not, not much daylight there. Not enough, man. It gets dark at four thirty, and it's like it's pretty pretty depressing. Yeah, <laughs> I could it's imagine. Wild, yeah. Yeah, people yeah. with uh, seasonal affective disorder would not do well no. in uh, Washington State at all. No, it's tough, especially if you're working like a, a full job because you start work when it's dark, and by the time you're done, it's dark. It doesn't even feel like you had a day. It's yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about where you were born, uh, what life was growing up as as a, a young child, family situation, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I'm from a town called Bainbridge Island, uh, Washington. It's like uh, it's you take a little ferry from Seattle and it pops you right over on Bainbridge. And I grew up there, moved from Seattle to Bainbridge when I was four. And uh, yeah, I had I'm an only child, grew up with both of my parents, had a loving family and um yeah, around about the time I was uh, seven, uh, I started getting molested. So just, yeah, just, and, you know, th there's really no way to segue into it. You know, mm -hmm. you just you kind of just got to dive in and then just go from there. But that's, that was a big part of my childhood was um, going through that experience. And, you know, I was fortunate to have like a super supportive group around me uh, of friends and family. But yeah, it was my, uh, my best friend's dad who did it. Uh, it started, uh, there's like a grooming phase. There's sort of a misconception about molestation, which is that it just starts. But normally there's like a whole phase where the perpetrator will like get comfortable with the kid and get close to the kid um, and basically just try to figure out, okay, if I do something, is this kid going to say something? So that started when I was around seven and slowly, you know, things progressed and, and uh, it, it became more and more like actual molestation. Um, a lot of perpetrators will frame things as games for me, that's, I was like, great. Yeah. Let's play this game where he would basically just come in and, and wake me up by like poking me. Uh, and then eventually it just became more and more sexual where he was like poking my dick. 
And then, you know, initially I was just like, fuck, oh, am I, can I swear on this? Or is this like, you do you, that's what I say. All right, man. Great. Great. So initially I was just like, this is so dope. Like I, I, I'm never going to turn down a game at age seven, you know? And so if you frame it in that, in that way, it's so much more easier, easy to get kids to sort of go along with this stuff. That was how it started. And, uh, and it just, yeah, it progressed and it went on for about two years. And then I eventually spoke up to my parents, what it took me to, uh, cause you know, even though I, what was, when it was going on, I kind of knew that it wasn't, something didn't feel right. You know, it was secretive, right? Only me and this guy knew about this, you know, it would be whenever I would go over to my friend's house for a sleepover, he would molest me. And so I, uh, yeah, I just, I felt like something was wrong, but I didn't know what to do about it or even like what was going on. You know, I didn't have like any sort of concept of what this stuff was or how to prevent it or, you know, defend myself basically. So eventually there was this one day where I got in a fight with my friend and the guy, his dad just like, didn't do anything about it. We were at his house and he had molested me the night before. And it was that anger that like actually sort of allowed me to speak up because before that, I feel like I had been preserving the relationship with my friend. Um, I kind of knew that if I spoke up, I would probably lose that relationship as well as, you know, what it's just an embarrassing thing to bring up. It's not exactly something that you want to tell your friends about. So, but it was that anger that actually like allowed me to, to speak up and tell my mom, you know, and and I can, you know, happy to feel free to jump in whenever I'm happy to keep going. But, uh, it was basically like, you know, we went to trial after that and that was about, you know, however many months after I told my parents and the guy didn't get convicted. It was a hung jury. So six jurors said that he was guilty and six said that he wasn't guilty. You know, and, and it didn't really bother me at the time because I just didn't want it to go on anymore. Uh, at that age, you know, I wasn't trying to like enact vengeance on this guy. I just didn't want it, want it to happen. So I, we basically didn't talk about it after that for like many years. Uh, and then I started doing stand-up comedy when I was 21, uh, 22. It was right when I got to New York City after college. And um, the first set that I actually ever did was about molestation. I had seen Louis C.K. do this bit about child molestation on, on SNL for one of his monologues. And it made me laugh. And I was with my parents when I saw him do that. And we were all laughing. And it was just like this weird experience where this topic that we had never talked about before, basically, since the trial, that was super sort of like hush hush, you know, all of a sudden, we were all laughing about it. And I was like, Oh, this is way better than treating it as this super negative thing that makes you feel bad every time you think about it. So I tried it in in New York and I just like immediately I kind of like blacked out. The first time you do stand up is so wild because it's it's already just like a nutty thing to do in terms of like stage fright and just like you know it's a it's a scary thing, but then you do it and it's like so uh, liberating. You're like, "Oh my god, I, I can do this." It, so it was a combination of doing stand up for the first time and talking about getting molested to a bunch of strangers. So it was this massive like cathartic release for me. And I just kind of knew immediately, I was like, oh, great. Well, this is something I want to do forever, basically. And so ever since then, yeah, man, I've been just I making jokes about it. And it was it was super hard initially, because, you know, people are not 
I didn't know how to present the information, you know, it's like, and so I would just bomb like, <laughs> like over and over and over again. And like bombing sucks, you know, like it sucks in any capacity, but telling a bunch of people that you got molested and having them not laugh is like so brutal in the, when the only appropriate reaction is for them to laugh. So it took some time, but um, yeah, I've been doing it for over three years now and uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's been like therapy for me in many ways. And I recently discovered TikTok, like right at the beginning of quarantine. Uh, so back in March, and I didn't really know what was going on with TikTok. I didn't, I didn't have any understanding of it. And I was just making random videos. And then my, my account, I had an initial account, which was just like a whole bunch of random jokes. And then I kept getting videos removed. And eventually my account got banned. And then they unbanned me and then they rebanned me. And now my videos don't show up on the For You page for that first account. So I started a new account, which is basically like dedicated to, it's not just molestation, it's like a mix of things. But I realized that the content I was making on that first account, like nobody was really benefiting from it. Like it wasn't helping anybody. With this new account, like, I mean, and you know, like with TikTok, it's, you have the ability to reach people unlike any other social media platform at this point in time, especially if you don't already have a following, you know, anybody can make a video that goes viral. And so I had this one video that was a, a molestation bit that I do, which is basically just how like, after I told my parents what happened, they bought me a pair of Heelys. Do you know those shoes with yeah, the wheels and yeah. the heels? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my parents bought me Heelys because I got molested. And in my eight year old head, I was like, this was totally worth it. That was just like the general thought process, right? You know, and, but at the time, like, you just don't know, like, like I was just so dumb. Like I thought that meant that everyone else who had Heelys also got molested. <laughs> like that was just like, cause you don't know, right? You right, just, right. you just assume. Such so. a confusing time. Right, right. And so then like, I went back to school and saw all these kids with Heelys and I was like, holy shit, like this is a serious issue. Like <laughs> there are so many kids getting molested, which even though that wasn't why they had Heelys, the numbers probably aren't super far off because yeah. it is statistically one in five kids get molested. Right. So that was like the, the, the bit, it, it was, there was more to it, but that was the, the bit that took off. Um, and you know, it went pretty viral and there were people reaching out to me, like from around the world, sharing, sharing their stories. And, you know, a lot of these people had never spoken up about their experience before. And so it was this combination of like talking about this stuff, uh, being vulnerable, like publicly, combined with the humor aspect that really seemed to resonate with people. And ever since then, like I, the, the podcast that I do uh, has really taken off since then, because I've sort of found this group of people because it's not for everybody, you know, like not everybody wants to laugh about this kind of stuff, and which is totally understandable. It's not it's not for everyone. Um, there's no right way to heal from this stuff. Uh, but the people that do resonate with it, like really fuck with it. And so it's so nice to have all these people that are you know, feeling like they can speak up oftentimes for the first time as a result of, of the, the content that I've done on TikTok. So it's very quickly transformed into this sort of like uh, life passion project of, uh, you know, alleviating because it's, you know, it's healing for me in addition to everybody else. It's super, it's super helpful every time I have a conversation about it and it gets easier with each conversation. And, you know, it, it, it no longer is a thing in my head that I'm worried about thinking about or worried that I'll get triggered about if somebody else talks about it. It's no longer, it doesn't weigh on me in the same way that it used to. So comedy has really provided me with that uh, sort of, I guess, 
ability to just um, heal. And uh, it's for me personally, a hell of a lot better than being this thing that makes me break down every time I think about it. Yeah, man, it's been kind of a wild ride. I, I, I've been rambling a little bit, so. Oh, you're fine. You know. <laughs> you're fine. So we got a lot to unpack here uh, <laughs> in in the first 11 minutes here. We got a lot to unpack. Uh, but I did I did want to mention something where you, you said you thought every kid that had Heelys had, had been molested. Well, in the South where I'm at, uh, they tell us that we have to assume that every child we come in contact with has been molested until proven otherwise. Whoa. That that it is such a high molestation rate now, especially in the children that, that we deal with that are having behavioral issues, you know, because there's a whole other avenue that, that comes in with that. But backing way up, um, we talked, you, you mentioned grooming. Grooming isn't just something that, that happens within molestation, even in in crime, you know, you just don't go out and rob a bank. That's not the first crime you commit. Uh, right. There is certain grooming. So in your situation, you said that it was, it was like a game that he played with you. And as a seven-year-old, especially a seven-year-old who may be a little competitive, people who do this sort of crime pick up on that and, and they know that and, and that's who they uh, kind of go after. So you had mentioned, you know, where he would wake you up just, you know, poking or prodding you. Was that one of the first things that happened or can you kind of explain what exactly happened within that grooming process? Yeah, totally. And that's so interesting that you mentioned the competitive aspect of it because I'd never thought about that before. And I was very competitive at the time. My, my best friend whose dad molested me, me and me and his son, met uh, on soccer through soccer we were both like very competitive soccer players I mean as competitive as you can be at that age yeah it's that's I think you're definitely right that was probably a big part of it and that's why these conversations are so fun is just because you learn something new about the experience every every time yeah so basically it started with so I would sleep next to my friend's bed in his room on the floor and so we would have these early morning soccer games that uh, we would always like to have sleepovers because we could just go to the games together. So his dad would come in, you know, early in the morning when we when we needed to wake up and he would lay down next to me. And, you know, yeah, it was initially just sort of the poking. What he would do is he would it would basically like if I woke up, then I would win the game. And if I didn't wake up, then he would win the game, even though like it was never we never like sat down and we're like, here are the rules when I would wake up he would be like, Oh, you win, you know? Mm -hmm. And then if I didn't, he would like make some reference to it when I eventually did wake up later in the day. It was like, Oh, I won this morning, you know, something like that. Now was your best friend still in bed while this was taking place? Yeah. So he was on the bed that was like, it was elevated and I was on the floor. So his, he wasn't even awake. I mean, presumably. Yeah. He and I never talked about that game that was going on. And when we were actually, when we went to trial, because uh, there were two rooms that I got molested in. It was that room, my friend's room. And that was generally just when the two of us were having a sleepover. But there was another room on the third floor of the house that was like a much bigger bed where if we were having like a group sleepover, me and a bunch of kids, we would all sleep in that bed. So it happened there sometimes too. And it would be because I was on the edge of the bed. And so the guy would lay next to the bed on the floor and reach up and grab my dick. And so that was what was interesting about the trial is that 
there were other kids that testified that said that they saw the guy coming into the room on multiple different occasions late at night. And the defense that he used was that he said that his son slept better when he was in the room, which is just interesting because it's like, why the fuck are you coming in at three o'clock in the morning then? We've all been asleep for many hours, right? Mm -hmm. But that was the alibi that they used. And in theory, you know, you can't really say that because, of course, his son, you know, agreed like and was he had to protect his dad, you know, talk about an impossible situation to be in. That was the defense. And that was enough in, in, in court to provide a reasonable doubt, right, uh, that he might be innocent. Um, so despite having other kids testifying that they saw him, you know, at the scene of the crime late at night, uh, he still didn't get convicted. But Right. It would um, almost have to be that they testify that he they actually saw him touch you. Exactly. Yeah. And because of the nature of molestation cases, it's very rare to get people that see this stuff happening. So the majority of the time, it's just a kid being like, this guy touched me. And the guy's like, no, I didn't. And that's not enough to convict somebody in our judicial system. Uh, but it's funny because the evidence is that it's a child saying that an adult molested them. Like, I, I always think about this, like, I have no, there's nothing that my best friend's dad could do to me that would make me say to other people that he touched my penis other than touching my penis. Right. You know what I mean? Like, what's he going to do? Like smash my Xbox, you know, like even if he did that, like, I'm just going to say he did that. I'm not going to be like, he touched my dick for two years, you know, mm. like, it's just such a, it's so silly. And in retrospect, it makes, you know, it's a lot easier to like unpack like the obvious signs that this was going on. But um, the reality is most people just don't know how big of a problem this is and, and what to look out for, including members of the jury. To go back to your original question, that was basically how the grooming uh, started. And it just got to a point where, uh, and I don't remember the transition. I don't remember like a specific day when he transitioned from poking me in the arm to poking me in the dick. But at some point that happened and then it was just that all the time. So initially it was poke. He called it the wiggle game. It's kind of gross, but that was that was the name that he used for this game. And so I would wake up with, you know, morning wood as, you know, men, children do. Right. And uh, and so he would wiggle it, wiggle it back and forth. And so that was sort of the noticeable shift that happened where I was like, OK, well, I know that this is still a game, but this is not the game that we started playing initially. But at that point, and it feels like every time that you don't speak up about the molestation, every additional time that it happens, it becomes harder to speak up. Like, oh, shit, like, I don't know why. I think people are going to think that it's weird that I didn't speak up initially. You know, there are all these reasons why victims don't speak up. And I remember that being one of them is that I thought that people would think that I was into it. And the reality is, you know, I had boners for a lot of the instances that this was going on for not because I was into this dude doing it, but because any, and, and obviously, you know, that does happen for victims too. And it's Absolutely. not diminishing that at all. In my personal experience, you know, it was just, your body will respond. Anybody can grab my dick and I'll get a boner, especially at that age, you know? And I remember when I got my first hand job from my girlfriend at the time, like, you know, five years later or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, this is anyone. This will feel great from anyone. You know, it's not just this dude who's doing it. And so, but when you don't have any sort of understanding of this stuff and you're just thrown into this sexual world so early, your mind goes to crazy places. And I legitimately thought that if I spoke up, that 
he would, the guy who molested me would admit to it, but say that I had boners for it. Mm-hmm. So I was into it. And I thought that that was going to be the end of the thing. I didn't even think that there was going to be a trial or anything. I thought that that just made it okay. Right. So, and you know, a lot of times, and one thing that, that we don't talk about a lot is men who are raped by women. And, you know, men can get an erection even when they don't want to participate in yes. the act. And they can say no, but when you get to a jury trial and you have a bunch of women on a jury, they don't understand or are even able to conceive that that could happen. Uh, and so a lot of that goes un- unnoticed as well. I-, I would imagine, was there ever a thought of, well, if I tell, I'm going to lose my best friend? Yeah, man, that was a huge, a huge factor. And because I was an only child, I think it also made it, he was more like a brother, you know, at that age, your friendships mean so much. Like I remember being competitive with other friends for my, my best friend's friendship. I didn't know what was going to happen exactly if I spoke up, but I had all of these hypotheticals that might happen. And I was pretty positive that I would lose my friend. But it's also just interesting, like what you just said there about uh, men's, you know, responding by a lot, just your, your dick responds to physical touch. I remember in my head being like, like getting mad at myself for getting a boner and thinking to myself while it was going on, like, no, like, I don't want this guy to think that I'm into this. Like I'm sending the wrong message, but I can't like talk down the blood flow, you know? So it's, it's tough, man. Especially at that age. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, and you're right. You know, if you take 12 random people, uh, you're, it's very unlikely to get 12 people that understand the intricacies of, of these types of things, whether it's molestation or, you know, rape of, of adults. And especially when you get into women raping men and molesting men, I mean, I feel like it's just sort of the way our society perceives this kind of stuff is that, for example, like teachers who hook up with their students, who rape their students, you know, that's sort of the fantasy for a lot of guys. It's like, oh, that would be so cool, you know, but it it's so often not the case. It's not just because it's a woman doing it doesn't mean it's any less traumatic or uh, that you felt like it just doesn't mean that you enjoyed it, you know, but Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, it's complicated stuff. Yeah, especially too, we don't hear a lot about, but there are cases of where women will actually, uh, you know, put things like ecstasy in a drink and then give the man a uh, a major dose of Viagra or Cialis so that they aren't really in control of that blood flow and what's going on. And then a rape occurs. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different things there with this predator. That's what I'm going to call him a predator. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause that's what he is. Uh, he's a, yeah. well, there's a lot of other adjectives that I could use that could describe <laughs> him, but we'll stick with, uh, predator. Was there, was it just touching or did it ever get more past him touching you yeah it never the the furthest it went was when he we were at they had a cabin like just you know off a couple of hours from seattle and me and my friend and his dad went to the cabin uh one time just the three of us and it was night and me and my friend were sharing a bed together and he got into bed between the two of us and that's when he molested me you know under the pants and it was it never escalated past him grabbing my dick that was that was the pinnacle the peak molestation and i remember in that moment just being like 
I always call my friend Jamie. I leave his name anonymous because he and I are actually still friends. Uh, believe it or not, I can definitely get into that too. But um, I just I call him Jamie in like the podcast, and I just remember thinking to myself like Jamie, like wake up, dude. Like there's a man in our bed right now. Like how are you not awake for this? And it was just so confusing, and I didn't know what to do. But that was about a year and a half into the molestation. And that was the first time that I ever actually said like out loud, I was like, please stop. One of the scariest moments of my life because I thought, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was just so fed up of this guy doing this. And so I said it and, and he just, he didn't say a word. He just like pulled his hand away and then got out of bed. I was like sick. Like, I didn't know I could even do this. Like, is that all it takes is me just telling you to stop? I mean, maybe, I guess. And then the next day, uh, I remember it was snowing uh, and we were having a snowball fight and it was me and my friend against his dad. And while we were, he was throwing snowballs at us and we had built this little fort. And I remember him out loud, like audibly being like, oh, the gay molester strikes again. Like that's, that's what he said. And I was like, what are you, because I didn't, I still didn't even really know what that meant at the time. I knew what gay meant, but I didn't know what molestation was. And he said that out loud? He said that while we were having the snowball fight. You're kidding. He said the, the gay molester strikes again. And then, and then I remember being like, I, I yelled, I was like, what? Like, what did you say? Because part of me was like, fuck, I, I, I know that he's referencing himself, even though I don't know what this really means. Just because all this time I've known that something was up, something's fishy. And he then said, don't you remember? Please stop. Like he was mocking me. Like he said what I had said last night in bed out loud with my friend there. And so this is sort of the point where I start wondering if this was also happening to my friend, if he was molesting him too. Because I think that there were too many instances, particularly like him getting into bed with us, where it would be possible for him to have not noticed. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was also getting molested. But, you know, you think about if that was going on, you know, if his, if his dad was molesting him too, talk about a paralysis, like not knowing what to do or how to get out of the situation. Realistically, it was probably great when I would sleep over because that would mean that he wasn't getting molested. So it's just a hypothetical. I don't know for sure. Or but, what a little bit of Benadryl or melatonin could do to a child that age that would keep them from waking up. Another thing I've never thought about, Doc, killing it, man. Yeah, well, I love it. Yeah. I, I was a police officer for seven years, so I, I've dealt with some of these things before. And, and I will say it is very, very, very difficult to convict a child predator uh, just solely based on the child's testimony. Of course. And, and it's so sad, but at the same time, we don't want to put the child through the trauma of sitting on a stand and, you know, telling everybody in this courthouse what is going on. And I assume that you had to do that at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My testimony was four hours long. Uh, I, 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 had, I think that's part of why I'm able to do stand up about it is because it's a lot easier to make jokes for five minutes than talking in depth for four hours when you're 10 years old about, you know, all of these different instances that happen. And the guy is in the room too. Like the, the perpetrator, the predator is in the room. Cause you know, the accused has a right to confute, confront their accuser in court. Like, can we change that for kid cases? What the fuck is going on here? I thought he was going to like stab me in the courtroom. I, and I remember seeing him 
And they were like, can you identify hit is like, is he in this room? You know how they make you do that? It's just part of the protocol. I'm like, guys, what are we doing here? Why are you making me look at this guy? <laughs> like, I'm not confusing him for somebody else, you know? Right. And so it's, it's a massively traumatizing experience. You want to know what's crazy, too, is about the, um, the wiggle game. So I had completely blocked that out of my mind. I had forgotten about it entirely until I was on the stand. While I was on the stand, they, the defense attorney brought up, he was like, does the wiggle game mean anything to you? So while I'm on the stand, I start having this flashback that's like all of all the things that I was talking about earlier, like the grooming and the initial molestation, all of that stuff, you know, for whatever reason, I had forgotten about. And I had told one of my friends, not Jamie, but a different guy who I was close with, I had told him that this was going on. And I had made him promise to not tell anybody about it. And so he had, of course, he had to do a testimony too and had told, had spoken up about the wiggle game and what I had told him. But I hadn't ever said anything about that. And so the defense attorney, you know, strategically didn't bring it up with me until we were in the courtroom so that it can look like, you know, I'm, there's, I'm confusing stories and stuff. But the reality is I just hadn't even, I mean, I guess my mind just like, as a defense mechanism, just blocked it out. Or maybe in my head, I was like, why do we need to know about this, the other stuff? Like, what about all these other, these real molestation instances that I'm describing to you that are way more graphic and like intense? For whatever reason, I had completely forgotten about it. And I felt so paralyzed when he brought that up. I felt like my mind was going like 100 miles an hour. And I ended up saying like, no, I don't know what the wiggle game is. Because I, I felt like I couldn't, process all of this stuff and also i was thinking to myself like oh my god like now i'm like they're gonna think that i mixed up stories like i felt like he had got me you know like he had caught me in the act or something which was of course all part of his plan i mean this is his profession is basically making kids kids look like they were lying it was a really it was a really kind of wild experience in that regard and of course you know afterwards I, I was talking to the the prosecutor who was like, you know, on our side. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. Like, he said all of that. And I started thinking about all this stuff. And I just kind of panicked. And she was like, don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, she calmed me down and stuff. Yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how memories worked like that. Yeah. And how they just flooded back in as soon as he mentioned the term, the wiggle gay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, our brain is, is, a, is a wonderful organ that can make us subconsciously forget certain areas of trauma. And that's why, you know, I tell people all the time, uh, therapy in and of itself is traumatic because as you start to recount all of these things, you're going to begin to remember things that you had completely forgot about or that were completely out of, out of your realm of thinking. I did therapy with a client one time who was convinced that she had been sexually molested as a child, but had no memory of it at all, mm. uh, where it was taken, but she was convinced. And as we began to do therapy, she began to recall when, where, who, what. And I was just like, okay, so are we making this up? Or, but it was too real. I mean, it was, yeah. it was too real. And even at that point, you know, there are people who fabricate these stories that we have to treat their trauma, even though the story's fabricated because they believe that it happened. Interesting. And so it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, now speaking to the, um, 
having to acknowledge who he was in court. As I mentioned, I was a police officer and I had arrested this guy for a DWI and we were in court and um, defense attorney said, can you without a doubt say, or he said, how many people do you arrest for DWI in a week? I said, 15, 20. I mean, I was in a very large city. He said, so can you say without a doubt that this man is the man that you arrested on the night of such and such, such and such? And, I, and I'm going, you know what? I cannot unequivocally say that this is the man that I arrested six months ago on the <laughs> night. Of, and because I couldn't. I mean, yeah. now it says on my report, that's who I, and that's what I said. My report says it was that man, but I could not, I couldn't say unequivocally without a doubt. And the, the charges were dismissed and the judge called me in his chambers. I was like, man, I really messed up now, you know, cause that's the last place you want to be. And, uh, <laughs> the judge actually wrote a letter of commendation to the, to the chief of police because I was completely honest. You know, if, if you can't, you can't even within our own judicial system today, uh, people are tried in the court of public opinion before they're ever tried in a court of law. And, uh, people just don't realize that a jury has to say there is no reasonable doubt that this took place in order for there to be a conviction. And, and it's very difficult, even in these, these type of situations. Now I find it interesting that you mentioned that you didn't know if maybe your friend Jamie was also being molested. Did you ever just flat out ask him, had this happened to him? No, I never did. Our relationship like I never brought it up uh, with anybody except for that first friend that I had told about the wiggle game. So I, so I hadn't, I never brought it up with Jamie, but he and I played on the same soccer team in high school. So after, after we went to trial, my parents asked me like, you know, cause because he didn't get convicted, he was just going to be, you know, around, he was going to be where we grew up. And they asked me if I wanted to move away and I didn't want to because I loved it there. Like my whole life, all of my friends were there, even though, you know, my one friend who I probably wasn't going to be friends with anymore, uh, aside from him, like I really liked, this was my home. And I felt like if we moved away, it would be like, almost like he won or something like conceding defeat. So I didn't want to move away. And so we didn't, I did switch schools. I went to a private school for two years before high school. And Jamie was a year uh, younger than me. So when we got to high school, he and I both played soccer. I was there a year before him. But then my sophomore year, we were on the same high school soccer team for three years. And it was interesting because there was never any hostility uh, between us at all. He never was shitty towards me. We were always super cordial. And, you know, we'd celebrate together when we scored goals. It was pretty because that was like so dope to, for me to just be able to still have, even though it was like not a deep relationship, it was still just knowing that he wasn't mad at me made it so great. So because, would his dad though be at these games? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we had a restraining order, even though he didn't get convicted, we, we did get a restraining order, but they had a condition on the restraining order, which is that he was still allowed to attend his son's soccer games. Uh, and so for every high school soccer game, the guy who molested me was in the stands cheering you on. <laughs> yeah. And it was pretty wild too, because like the whole community knew about it. Right. So even though he didn't, it was, even though he didn't get convicted, the vast majority of parents were on my side. 
And so they would form like my parents and these other parents would form like this barrier of this parental barrier in front of the guy who molested me in the stands for all the games. So they would just stand in front of him and he would like get up and move around and they would follow him with their little wall. And, uh, and it felt good because even though it was kind of embarrassing at the time and I didn't really want anybody to be thinking about it, it still just felt good to know that like all these people like had my back. There was this moment my senior year where I was going to be going off to college and, you know, we were just having like a party and we were all drunk and it was me and Jamie and all these other kids on the team. And there was just kind of this moment where I remember just saying to him, like, yo, like I, despite everything that happened, like, this is so cool that we can still have this relationship. And he was like, yeah, man, like I completely agree. And it was just like this really sort of heart to heart moment that was like all of this unspoken stuff that had happened we were just still able to like hang out and have a good time together and it was i don't know man it just like felt really uh it felt really awesome to to maintain that friendship so do you think that he had molested anyone else in the community or that you were just kind of his first we got reached out to because it was a pretty high profile case i mean it's a small town uh so there were a lot of articles written about it and after these articles were written about him being not guilty and stuff, somebody reached out to the detective on the, on the case and said that the guy who molested me had molested him 20 years ago. And it was like, that would have been really helpful right before the case. But um, yeah, obviously he didn't know until then. So yeah, uh, presumably he's been doing it for 20 plus years. Can, can I ask what occupation he does? He was a lawyer. Yeah. The dad that did this was a lawyer. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think he was a lawyer of some kind. I'm not sure exactly what, but something like that. Yeah, because yeah. we just had a well, he was a an attorney for 20 years and he was uh, appointed as one of the district court judges and he was arrested mm, probably a year ago for meeting uh, an underage child and the child's dad at a hotel to have a three way. And I was like, <laughs> you're a judge. Like, come on. You know, oh how was God. this not evident that this was a setup? Yeah. Uh, but those, I guess those fantasies get to a point of where you just can't control those urges. And so I would urge people who have these urges that uh, are illegal to not be silent about it, to go to a therapist, go to somebody that you know that if they tell that you can sue them and own everything that they have, uh, and tell them that you are having these feelings and emotions because it is, I'm going to go out on a limb here and some probably will disagree with this, but pedophilia is wrong. There is nothing natural about it, um, especially when there is not consent. And I, I don't think that a minor can consent to that. Now we could argue what a minor is, you know, uh, whether 16 is an age or 12 is an age, but I just really think that people that have these issues need to realize that they're not okay. You know, they're not, not there. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree. And it's one of those things that is, it's so, it's such an uncomfortable topic to breach and begin dissecting because we really have to get to the root. If we're going to prevent this stuff, we have to get to the root of the issue and be willing to, help people that are willing to recognize that they have this attraction to children. And if you like, for example, like, you know, if you, if you become aware of that, it's not something that you want to bring up, right. 
but nobody's nobody's just sort of trying out molestation like they know that they're attracted to kids before they do it it's premeditated behavior and if we could find a way to sort of destigmatize conversations about this kind of stuff like trying to get help before you act on these interests i mean you could probably help a ton of people but yeah it's just such a tough thing because you have to admit that you're a pedophile and that's like a, it's a super difficult thing to do but yeah, I've always been curious, like, you know, I kind of want to have a, a pedophile on my on my podcast and just like, you know, ask, like, how do you, when did you start realizing this? Were you molested? What caused you to get to the point that, because I don't think that it's predetermined. I think it's experiential. I, I think that there are things that happen to you that make you interested in kids. I don't think anybody's just default into that. I mean, maybe they are, who knows? Well, I, I would agree with that statement, but also I, I think that a lot of times, that it is a male, when it's a male to another male child, that it is that male ex experimenting with homosexual thoughts. And, and they know that that child isn't going to understand what's going on as to where if they experimented with someone who was of age, people would believe them because that's just not something somebody would make up. Yeah. And so I, I do think that there, there are many different reasons uh, why that would, would come into play, uh, there. So totally. I, and it I, could also be, you know, if it happens, like if you were molested, it could definitely be the type of thing where you're trying to normalize that behavior and trying to think to yourself, okay, well this happened to me. So if I, you know, I can do it to other people and, and maybe that'll make me feel less weird about, maybe this is just what happens. You know, I think that there's a massive amount of value in trying to get into the heads of predators and, and figuring out, you know, why, is, why are you doing this and can we prevent it? But we, we do have to be more open and accepting, maybe not accept, well, I guess it is accepting, but just honest about how big of a problem this is and how many people we could potentially save from, uh, from doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, obviously, of course, the kids that we'd be saving too. Absolutely. Because had the grooming continued and had you allowed it to continue, it would have ended up being a lot more than touching. I think you're probably right because that time that I did say please stop, that was the 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 peak. That was the pinnacle moment. And I can imagine if I didn't say something there, he'd be getting into bed every time, and that would just have escalated more and more. I think you're definitely right. Yeah. Yeah, and then I mean, then you get into child trafficking, you know, all of this kind of stuff of where uh, when it builds and builds and builds and builds that you get a child's trust and, and you, you do that. I, I don't know if you, you probably have, you're, you're quite a bit younger than I am. So you're probably more social media type of guy. I'm new to all of this stuff. So I, that's why my TikToks are very basic, no transition, uh, a bunch of stupid hashtags and my little name and block letters. Um, hey, I love your TikToks, so, man. Keep um, it up. There are these um, uh, videos out there of, you know, to catch a predator with, with Chris Hansen. Uh, yeah. and, but most of those are like with 14, 15, 16 year old kids. And I think that there is some people who believe that a 14, 15, 16 year old should be able to consent to that. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think I agree with that. And, and so then when these, these people are, are groomed, and then even, you know, some of these kids on TikTok that are 14, 15, 16 year olds are out there 
twerking and showing half of everything they've got. And I'm going, yo, I know. Do you not understand what you are doing? I mean, TikTok is the absolute most outrageous app that's ever existed, just for the reasons that you were talking about. I mean, they're literally creating softcore child. They're not even creating it. Kids are creating softcore child porn videos. And TikTok is pushing that out to billions not even close to an exaggeration, billions of people. And, you know, you look at the most popular creators on the app, Charlie D'Amelio, who blew up when she was 15. She's in a bathing suit in the majority of her videos. Anyone can go on TikTok anonymously and create an account of any age, download the videos, interact with the kids. TikTok is facilitating those interactions. They're also profiting off of these children twerking. They don't pay you anything until you're 18. So they're keeping all of that money from these minors, you know, shaking their asses. And every trend is so sexual. Like, do you watch the show Black Mirror? No, I've never heard it's of sort it. Of like a, it's like a sci-fi, uh, futuristic, um, dystopian sort of a, a, a series. And TikTok is the epitome of a Black Mirror episode because never before has there been an app where minors can go on and do the WAP for millions of people and be glorified for it. Like TikTok also has the data on these. I mean, obviously you could create accounts anonymously. So not everybody's like accurately putting in their age and stuff, but surely TikTok is, is able to keep track of the adults that are just liking every minor, you know, bouncing their titties. Well, and their just algorithm like, would certainly on their for you page uh, would yes. show that. Although I think lately some of the things I've seen on my For You page that my algorithm must be broken because I do not know where some of this stuff is coming from. Well, I think that TikTok will just like if you're a man or a woman, I think TikTok will just the algorithm will always every now and then slip in a video of somebody in a bathing suit just to just because. They like just to let you know, like, hey, if you're into this, we still have it available. There's no other <laughs> app where we've got 14 year olds, you know, fucking doing dancing to Cardi B. Also, it's just like the most sexual shit I've ever seen in my life. Like, and it's the homepage. The homepage of your app is flooded with with minors twerking. Like, mm -hmm. what are we doing here? How is this app able to exist? I saw this kid in a diaper the other day twerking, and you know the parents were. <laughs> The parents were just agging it on. And I'm like, okay, so this kid's in a diaper twerking. And when this kid gets pregnant at 12, you're going to wonder where you went wrong. Yeah, exactly. And also like, you know, you think about the the damage that TikTok is doing to our species by inundating us with softcore child porn. Talking, talking about pedophiles, right? And people that haven't acted on their desires yet. You are putting this content in front of people who would have otherwise never seen these these children twerking. You are responsible. TikTok is responsible for showing this content to people. And I mean, it's literally creating pedophiles because people who would have otherwise never seen this stuff are now seeing basically the most attractive way you can display a person. Like people pay hundreds of dollars to see adults do what children on TikTok do for free all the time. And it's like, they're all, they're, we've got kids doing their own personal webcam shows for strangers online. Like this is a, it's a nightmare. But I mean, all of that being said, like, of course, TikTok has an amazing amount of good that it's doing as well as evidenced by our content, right? Like we're able to help so many more people than we ever would have been able to, but there's this dark 
secret that isn't even a secret because the most popular creator has a hundred million followers and she's 15, 16. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't know, man. And it's like TikTok isn't even in this Chinese like enigma anymore, you know, that was operating on this sort of it was out of our sort of boundaries of jurisdiction. It's owned by Walmart and Oracle now. I mean, at least the U.S. operations are. So they're responsible. You know what I mean? Like how and and like I saw this article from uh, Rolling Stone. This stuff always gets me hyped up because it's like, you know, exactly in the lane of like pedophilia and like what we're trying to prevent. But um, uh Rolling Stone wrote an article about how TikTok teens were ending up on Pornhub. So there was this one trend that was basically just like, uh, it would just start with the, the girl's face and then it would go and she would just be sticking her ass up. And they people were taking those videos, downloading them, making compilations of them and putting them on Pornhub. And it's like, it's bad. Of It's like so insane that that's happening, but it's not even that it's on Pornhub. Like it, the, the, the content is on TikTok. It's, it's already there. It's already, and it's getting millions and millions of views. And you see girls like, and boys too, of course, but like, if you look at the numbers of these creators, it'll be like a 15 year old. And, and she'll, I saw this one creator who had like, you know, roughly a hundred thousand views of video. And then she did that trend where she stuck her ass up in the air and got 50 million views in a day. So it's like you're conditioning the creators on the app to also recognize that they're not going to get views unless they sexualize themselves. And it's, you know, it's, it's also just like they're preying on children. Like, you don't know what the lasting ramifications of this stuff are going to be. It's permanent. It's the Internet. Mm -hmm. There are so many young kids who are TikTok stars or Instagram stars, however you want to label them, that are committing suicide because they had the one video that got 50 million likes and they never had another one again. Yeah. Or you have... Uh, which it's funny to me, but you have these people who have reached 50,000 followers and they have no original content. I mean, it's just whatever trend is going on <laughs> and they have set up a website and merch and I'm going, yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> sure. But then, you right. know, we get kind of to the point of where, you know, I'm a 37 year old, a fat, bald, ugly man. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will still have people send me private messages saying, Hey, I'll Venmo you or I'll PayPal you a hundred bucks for feet pics or oh, yeah. for, for your socks or for underwear. And I'm going, okay. So if there's somebody sick enough that wants that from me, <laughs> we know that those kind of messages are being sent to the minor TikTokers that are, are doing all of this stuff. Absolutely. And how easy would it be for them to get the funds electronically without their parents ever even knowing? Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head You're talking about like sugar daddies, that type of stuff now. I mean, I've seen videos on TikTok that are just screenshots of all the Venmos that people are getting from strangers on the internet for whatever requests. I mean, who knows what's going on, right? And if you're willing to, to, to twerk on camera, I'm sure you're willing to do it privately and send it to them and maybe do more. I mean, it's like, it's just, um, it really is like a very dystopian style sort of start of like the demise of the innocence of children. Uh, that's what this app feels like. And I get those requests too. Um, and we're, and that's I'm sorry like, you about know, sending you that request, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'll get those feet pics to you as soon as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, man, it's, it's, it really is nuts. And it's just kind of, you know, you're talking about the feeling of going viral and people committing, committing suicide. It's like the way TikTok is set up is you get, a ton of attention 
and then immediately it basically stops completely. So you go from having thousands of people interacting with you and telling you all these, you know, giving you all these compliments and it feels, I mean, it really is like a physical high feeling and then it vanishes and you're like, oh my God, I need to get that feeling back. So if the way that you're getting that feeling is by sexualizing yourself, it's, you're just going to keep doing it. And it creates this vicious loop of, you know, not to mention the fact that a vast majority of the comments are just people making fun of them. Like all the comments on girls videos that are them sexualizing themselves are just dudes like making fun of them, like being like, Oh, you're talentless, you know, all this stuff. So it's this horrible loop of, of the dopamine from getting likes and also the, the lows of getting made fun of by, you know, all aged people on TikTok. Absolutely. Well, my most viral video had 1.7 million views and the next 20 videos after that had under 5,000. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah. And then once, which I don't know if you're in the creator fund, but I'm in the creator fund. Once you go in the creator fund, your videos like tank. I mean, just hey, tank. Yeah. And, and it was even to a point was, is it worth it to get 23 cents a day? Uh, and people not really being seeing your content, you know, that, I mean, it was a hard thing to weigh as to whether or not to stay in. But then there's this guy and I helped him initially, I helped him get some followers. And one day he had a video that just popped off 5 million views. He got a million followers overnight and he does spin art. I mean, it's stupid. He, he has this <laughs> canvas attached to a drill, puts paint on it and then spins the canvas. And then you have this, the spin art. Well, uh, so now he has 5 million followers. He does the yeah. spin art stuff. He quit his job, bought sure. a house and was, <laughs> I mean, because he's making the money off of TikTok to do this. And then he did this video. It had snowed and he had taken his dog out uh, and he had taken some food coloring and made the snow yellow. And he was like, y'all eat the yellow snow. It's, it actually tastes really good. They banned his account. Everything is gone. And I'm oh like, my God. do you not realize how fast it can all go away? Oh my God. That is insane. Oh, but over eating yellow colored snow, but we have 15 <laughs> and 16 year olds out 13 here. 15 year olds. Yeah. Just, <laughs> okay. So I'll tell you this. Wait. Okay, wait, um, just before we move on from that, that is so, it, it's so insane because that, that's like just the epitome of TikTok. It, it, it happens overnight. You're, you're, you can have success like that so fast. And as soon as you're getting that kind of view, those, those kind of views, you, you get reached out to by all these brands and you can make a crazy amount of money so quickly. But, and that's the experience that I had on my first account where, you know, I had a video that got 5 million views. And then the next video I posted, I, I said fuck in it and I got it got removed for hate speech or whatever. And I'm like, why is it if I sing it in a song, I can talk about, you know, just the worst things possible if you at, do it in a little tune. Right. But if you say it, it just it's so arbitrary. The way TikTok operates is so arbitrary and they don't give you any context, right? They'll just ban like like what happened with your friend. They'll ban you and they don't give a fuck about you because you they don't need you. Right. And as soon as you are doing something, it's why it, it, I love talking about this stuff on podcasts, 
but I really want to talk about it on TikTok. Like I really want to make TikTok videos about the stuff that we've just been discussing, but I know that that's jeopardizing the potential outreach from really helping people with the molestation content. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird uh, sort of limbo of, you know, knowing that TikTok is such a huge problem and also being sort of uh, enabled to stand up to it uh, on its the platform itself. But yeah, man, that, that is that is really crazy. Did your friend, um, is he still, I, I hope he didn't have a mortgage. <laughs> he made a new account and uh, thankfully, you know, and, and I tried to do this. If you follow me on TikTok, make sure to follow me on Instagram. So if anything ever happens, you can, you know, know what my new TikTok is, but his gets taken down over eating yellow colored snow. And then I come across this video on my For You page of this this kid acting like he is at his school shooting people. And he shoots this kid, kid falls down. And of course it's him, you know, it's the one person video acting like different people. Yeah. And then he he says the kid's laying down face down. He turns around and gets a close up of of this this boy's behind and he says and I quote Shorty's ass looking fat today and then you hear the cheek clapping you know with the background going on so <laughs> you course. know yeah. what's going on here so yeah. I report the video not I mean it is it it's a shooting you yeah. know, yeah, of course. Uh, there are kids that have their videos taken down because they've got play guns in their videos. Here's yeah. a shooting. Uh, there is a rape, you know, <laughs> all of this kind of stuff. And so I report it and I get back. This video does not violate community standards. And I'm going, but eating yellow snow does. Yeah, you just ruined a person's livelihood for <laughs> yellow snow, but you let, you know, talk about your clientele also, like, a, unfortunately, a large, not a large percentage, but a lot of kids who will see that video have probably experienced something like that. And you talk about, you know, triggering content. I mean, it's, it really is, it feels like, and I don't know how TikTok works in the sense that I don't know if people are like, you know, going through all of these individual report requests, or if it's the algorithm that just something gets triggered and it gets get, gets taken down. I don't know uh, exactly. But whatever it is, it's massively inconsistent. And also like, just a real problem. Because like, dude, I made a I made a duet or a, not a duet, a stitch. So this girl popped up on my for you page. And she's just, you know, in lingerie looking like a stripper. I mean, just that's what it is. She's behaving like a stripper. And I have no issue with her at all. Right. But the stitch that I did was I was like, it's just weird to go from watching cat videos to watching 14 year old strip on my homepage of this app. That was the whole thing. It got removed for hate speech and adult nudity. And first of all, adult nudity is if kid nudity is okay. But they, the original video is still up. So I'm like, I'm not, you think I'm nude? What the fuck is going on here? But I mm -hmm. think it's when you start getting into the territory of exposing what TikTok is, I think, I think that they're well aware of that and are flagging your account and trying to get rid of it. But who right. knows? Because the people who are buying the coins and giving it to these kids is what's <sighs> funding TikTok. Wow. And so they're Didn't not going to take that, that content down. And you know, wow, you're so right. You're so right. They're facilitating the the payments between these adults and yeah. the children. Holy and not only that, TikTok keeps eighty percent of the of what you pay for the coin. So, <laughs> like, 
you know, if you get the thousand coins, it's like a hundred bucks for the thousand coins. But if you give somebody a thousand coins, it's only like 20 bucks worth of value to the receiver. So, but put your Venmo or cash app in one of your lives, telling people to just send you money there and you will be down in a heartbeat. I mean, they take you down fast. Really? Yeah. Like, uh, they removed your, your, if you tag it in your like caption of your video or, or, or uh, if you say it, if you say Venmo cash app, there is something in the algorithm of the live that will immediately shut your live off. Well, and that's what makes me think it's, it is the algorithm because like, if you comment and write molestation, your comment is deleted immediately. It doesn't even show up. Same with abuse. So there, it's definitely picking up triggers uh, and that could, de- like Insta, if you say Instagram, your comment doesn't show up. Your video won't show up, presumably. Right. So yeah, I mean, they're doing everything to just keep you on the app and keep the revenue flowing. And I've just never seen an app that is as addicting as TikTok. And, you know, the whole layout, it's so immersive. You can't even see your clock on on the phone. It's like a casino, right? There's no windows, right? Like it's it's so so destructive and just like manipulative. And I I really do think that, I mean, TikTok is basically highlighting because the reason those kids are so popular is because of pedophiles, I think, because there's never been an app before where you can do this. Normally people go onto the dark web and have to, you know, risk all this stuff to have this happen. Now you just get unlimited kids twerking for free. It's bananas. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Crazy. Well, stuff. we've gotten way off topic here. So <laughs> yeah. uh, we're gonna we're gonna end yeah. this this podcast, go to our subpod of Doc Talks DX, where we talk about a diagnosis that you uh, presumably would have with all of this uh, stuff that you've been through. And we'll talk about your unique way of how you've learned to cope with it, uh, not just through your comedy, but through another means. Um, so we thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. I'm Doc Brian. As we go into the doc, uh, diagnosis part of this, uh, you can find that episode on Patreon, a Doc Talks DX, where we will talk about the diagnosis here and potential treatment or how we could use all of this together to help with, uh, cope with a mental illness. Uh, Sebastian, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and uh, he will join us on the second part of this podcast to discuss the everything that's going on with him. Where can people find you at? What is the name of your podcast, your handles, all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, my, my podcast is called What Happened to You with Sebastian Scales. It's available on all platforms. It's also got video up on YouTube. Uh, my account name is Sebastian Scales on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere is Sebastian Scales. So feel free to check me out on all of those things. And yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I really, really had a great conversation. Yeah, we're, we're excited uh, to have you and to carry over into this next podcast. Of course, you can find me at thedocbrian.com. On TikTok, Doc underscore Brian. Instagram, the underscore Doc underscore Brian. I never knew there were so many Doc Brian's until, <laughs> uh, and and you know the interesting thing is, uh, Doc Brian on Instagram has eight followers. And so I sent him a message and was like, "Hey, do you want to sell me your account?" And he was like, "Nah, bro, I'm good." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay, well then." He sent me a message the other day and was like, can you please tell people to stop tagging me and stuff thinking <laughs> it's you? And I was like, would you please just sell me your account? Yeah. You know, but 
Anyway, follow us on all of our social media. You can find all the links at thedocbrian.com. Feel free to follow us there on anything, and we look forward to having you with us next time. Uh, Once again, make sure to check out the second part of this episode, Doc Talks DX, on Patreon. And, of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Again, thank you for listening. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time. See ya.